do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Bozo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. Welcome to another episode of Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered, a podcast show where I talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why my focus on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land, grow our food and what we eat. And it's time that we as investors, big and small and consumers, start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. In March last year, we launched our membership community to make it easy for fans to support our work. And so many of you have joined as a member. We've launched different types of benefits, exclusive content, Q&A webinars with former guests, Ask Me Anything sessions, plus so much more to come in the future. For more information on the different tiers, benefits and how to become a member, check gumroad.com slash investingregionag or find the link below. Thank you. Welcome to another episode. Today with Frank Wooten, founder of Fence, livestock production reinvented, virtual fencing and autonomous animal control. And then they have an amazing subline, which is double your profit with Fence. Welcome, Frank. How's it going this morning, Kai? Very good. We have a lot to unpack there. I'm very interested in the double your profit, obviously, but also the autonomous animal control. But let's start with your story first. You didn't start in soil. How did you end up going after farmer's profit, soil building, and even carbon in the last few years? Yeah, like most people's entrepreneurial path, it's a it's a bit circuitous. So I actually, my first you know, career, first life was in finance. Um, and so I was one of those people that everybody loves to hate, worked on Wall Street for six years, and then, and then actually was on the investment side for another six years, always focused on small companies. And when I kind of started looking around for my next foray or, or next entree and what I wanted to do, I, I ended up looking for something that actually, like most people do, had felt like it had more purpose uh, and felt like it was one of these things that had more meaning. I, I ended up landing at a startup. Actually, I was in Brazil at the time. I was focused on health insurance tech and I was approached via my now co-founder uh, with this idea for an angel investment in this crazy idea of putting a collar on cattle and like removing the need for fences. And at the time, I just kind of said, wow, I've got no insight into ag. I've got no background into any of these things, but it sounds intriguing at a minimum. Let me just kind of dig in, so to speak. And the more time that I spent on it, the more interested I got. You know, being in Brazil at the time and working down there, you, you have access to kind of one of the largest beef markets in the world. So you can get out on on farms fairly easily and see the magnitude of this, of the problem. And my direct you know, response to how to get into soil is actually it started with the size of the opportunity it started with kind of the, like there's a billion head of cattle out there on the planet and there's three plus billion total livestock and it's like this massive opportunity space and fencing is what was the control mechanism for all of those animals and so the magnitude of the opportunity is what really sucked me in and that fencing was this sense of control and, and sense of enhanced profitability, which I certainly 
understood from my background, right? It was this financial lens that I was looking at it through. And then what happened over time is that I really started to understand that soil was the mechanism, which it was the translation mechanism for increased productivity on a farm. And that fencing was just one of the tools in the toolkit, animals being another one, that are really helping this kind of translation mechanism. And and so it's been an indirect path, but I'm, I'm squarely there now, <laughs> I can say. And, and when was Brazil for you? When are we talking? When was this? So this was 26, 2015, 2016. Okay, wow. uh, so we started the business. I took a while. It took me about six months. And at that point in time, I'd be gone from like skeptical angel investor to like, no, okay, I want to take this thing and, and run with it. Like, it's just this really amazing opportunity. And that was in mid to late October, mid to late uh, 20, yeah, October 2016, that we formed the company. So there was a company already that you ended up investing in, or there was just an idea? There was no company. So so I, I kind of invested and launched the company at the same time. And what is fence? Let's Because you, you talked about a collar and then fencing, and I think some people are wondering, this autonomous animal control thing that Kuhn said at the beginning, what is fence and, and walk us through and make it as visual as possible because we're in, in audio, obviously. Yeah. So most people have some concept of an invisible fence for dogs. You know, they, a lot of people kind of have this visual where the dog has a collar and there's generally a wire in the ground. And if that dog walks up to near, near where that wire is, they hear a sound. And if they go over that wire, they'll get an electric stimulus. We've done that except there is no wire in the ground. It's all based on GPS. And it's obviously, you need to magnify it, you increase the size of that for cattle. So we've built this kind of end-to-end system where you can you hop on your computer browser, draw up a fence line. That fence line gets sent down to a collar in the middle of your pasture, and you can program it to turn on, turn off, or move animals from one place to another via the utilization of sound. So, so cattle are you know, much smarter than most people give them credit for. They learn really quickly to respond to sound. And so you know, the only visuals that I have for you are really the collar that you can kind of envisage. Oh, but just to imagine for people, so you see this herd of cows that have a collar around their neck and the farmer is basically programmed a virtual fence. There's no real fence. So it's just a, an enormous open space potentially with trees, potentially not, depending on the field. And the farmer decides today I'm moving the cows to the next virtual field to the right, or I'm wanting to move them to the right, draws that square, and the sound in the collar is basically, it starts buzzing or starts making a sound that at some point the cow moves to the right direction and stops when the cow is at the new place we like them to be. But without any fencing, without any dogs, without any helicopters, without any person or something pushing them there, they move by themselves. It's somewhat romantic when you get to see it actually out in the field, right? Because you're like, I want the animals to be here, but I don't want to have the fence line there. I don't want to have all of this occurring. And, and you can see animals just move from one one space to another without the need for any physical intervention as it relates to you. Because now often they, they will touch the fence line, which is electric, if you are doing adaptive grazing, rotational grazing, etc. And of course, they get they get some electric stimulus, as you call it, and they know, okay, we're not going past here. We're moving to the right or to the left or wherever you want to go. So it's they're moving by themselves. To ask the thorny question immediately, how annoying is it for the animal? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's um, like 
all cattle learn the way that they learn electric fence is actually they put their nose on it. Which seems pretty annoying. Yeah, it's very annoying. The annoying would be a, a mild, a mild um, word, right? Like you, it, it's training them via via aversive Pavlovian training. So you're, you're basically saying you now have a visual stimulus that you're correlating to that and stay away from this. What our order of magnitude, so a, an electric fence will generally be somewhere in the order of magnitude of 3,000 to 8,000 volts, depending on if you're running cows versus bulls versus steers, et cetera. Bisons. Yeah. Yeah. What I, yeah bison, you're up at the top end there. And then we're about 800 volts is what the stimulus is. And we've done a bunch of different cortisol tests on animals and looked at kind of changing behavioral patterns. And there are a number of studies that are out there that have been that have been done on this. And, and there's actually no differentiation in terms of kind of stress on animals. How annoying is it? I mean, it's annoying, right? Like if you got a 800 volt stimulus, you'd avoid that sound. But the reality is that's how animals are trained right now. It's not. So it's a shock or it's a sound or it's both? A sound and stimulus is what trains the animal. And then 95% of the time after that, it's just sound. Just sound. Okay. It's like the, the proverbial, a lot of kids put their hand on the stove before they learn that that's hot. And then they shouldn't anymore. But you always have a couple of kids who, you know, put their hand on the stove a couple of times. And then after it's the heat that makes you feel it. Exactly. That's what happens for us. It's, it ends up being largely sound that, that controls animals. Do you want to learn how to invest or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. So it saves an enormous amount of fencing. I was going to ask you, you said uh, 3 billion heads of cattle in the world. Like, Have you ever done... Like, do we know how much fencing there is? There's 1 billion, but 3 plus billion. If you, you have 900 million sheep, 400 million goats. Do we know how much fence line there is in the world? I've spent a lot of time going down a Google rat hole. Okay, so if anybody has that data, it would be nice. Send it over. But so that we don't, but it's a lot for sure. It's a lot. It's a significant amount of fence line. And it's mostly this really nasty barbed wire. Like it's not just to keep livestock in, but also there's an enormous amount of wildlife that gets trapped in all of that. Yeah, so I think it's a it's been since people really started this and you've got fence lines. Fence line I kind of like to joke around and say it's a 10,000 plus year old technology because you can go to throughout Europe we obviously we don't have as much of this like you know super steeped history in, in fencing in the US but like the domestication of wildlife and and you go to you go in in Ireland you'll see these old rock fences that have been up for thousands of years and the newest technology that happened in you had the barbed wire was invented in the 1800s which helped you know tame the american west and then the electric fence was invented in kind of the late 1930s 1940s but it's taken a while to get adopted as well so you save a lot of fencing but that's not why we're so excited about this we're excited (laughs) because of other reasons why is it so amazing for the farmer apart from fencing which is an enormous cost and enormous headaches etc but it if you start to go to virtual fencing you suddenly unlock an amount of opportunities that i at least never thought of until i started to think this through a bit so talk us through what makes this possible for a farmer or rancher yeah i think like one of the things that like that 
people who aren't on the farm don't necessarily think about is like with fencing, creating a static solution to actually a dynamic problem. And as we know, everywhere else in our lives, that doesn't work particularly well. It's a, you know, and what I mean by that is like, even over the course of a year, if everything is exactly the same in terms of precipitation and climate patterns over the course of the year, during that year, you need different fencing based on what the growth is in your pastures, because you've got springtime, you've got winter. And yet, since people make a $10,000 a mile physical fence investment in in it, they just kind of say, okay, well, we're going to use this. We're, it's the solution that we have. This is what we're going to use. And so the ability to adapt, which is like, you know, amp grazing, or, you know, but like the ability to adapt to what the climate is telling you, to what the season is telling you, and to what your animals are. And just amp grazing is adaptive multi-paddock grazing, yeah. just for the... Got it. Yeah, for the Sorry, linger. I yeah. apologize. <laughs> uh, um, but the ability to adapt, observe, is very different if you have no fencing. Yeah. Exactly. And then what that allows you to do, like if you think about why farmers utilize fencing and we're going to get, you know, I'll start diving into this a little bit here, but like livestock farmers are grass farmers. It's a grass factory. And their goal is how to optimally translate solar energy into grass growth is kind of the equation that they need for maximum productivity. And the cattle are the worker bees that are a taking that grass and translating it into a consumable product, whether that's meat or milk, but they're also optimizing what its growth patterns look like. So they're, they're grooming it. And if you think about grass, so like you get into why fencing is needed, you, it's about your grass growth patterns and how grass optimally translates into a solar panel. You go dig a little bit further and you say, okay, well, yeah, it kind of makes sense if, if grass is at stubble, it has no solar panel. If grass actually gets to this past its peak growth, you can actually see it in a field where it starts to bend over and it starts to have dead leaves on the end and its growth pattern is reduced. And so all of that means there is an optimal growth period at which you should have animals be grooming that grass. And that's what fencing is for. That's the purpose of fencing on a livestock farm. And if you are dealing with a static solution to that, which is permanent existing fences, you are unable to optimally manage your property for productivity. So from our customer's perspective, it's really a productivity and yield question as it relates to fencing. And what we enable customers to do is really dynamically, really quickly fix that and have the ability to change that without the need for infrastructure or labor. So it's a tool that's in their toolbox that previously was just completely unfathomable. Talk us through like an example, one of your customers. What does that mean for the farmer, the bottom line, the company, the family? Like what does this enable somebody to do in an interesting, I mean, you have many obviously, but in an interesting example, what is one that's like sticks out when somebody asks you, okay, tell me about a real life example. A great example is is one of our customers who, who we love, like he's all of our customers are kind of really interesting and cool individuals. And Leo, this guy, Leo Barthelmus and in, in, in up in Montana on Barthelmus farm. Um, he's up in Northern Montana and he's owned his property for 
for now almost you know 60 years um and um over the course of that so he bought the farm it had it was 35,000 acres basically and it was four pastures at that time he's got a couple hundred animals on that piece of property he's kind of looking at it and and over the course of 50 years he went from four pastures to 30 and the reason it took so long to do that is because of how much money and and how much labor is required to set up that fencing as well as you just not having the ability to manage those animals between one area and another, right? So you have to move the animals from paddock to paddock. You have to be able to get in there and monitor. There's so many other things that he had to do. He just didn't have resources to increase the intensity of management on that property. And so in an actual basis over those years, he put up the equivalent of call it 10 miles of fencing, a little bit more than that. We put our product out on his property last November. So one year ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So one year ago, actually, wow. exactly <laughs> right now. We actually just went up there and shot some video with him just on his property because it's now snowing. We've got cattle out grazing in the snow. And the first six months of putting our product in his pastures across his herd, we put up the equivalent of 40 miles of fencing. So we did 4x what he was able to do in 50 years in six months for the cost of a mile and a half of fencing. Wow. And so the ability for him to change how he was able to put pressure on his landscape, how that translates to his bottom line, which is critical for us to even have a business, is that at the end of the year, when he looks at his property and he's looking at like what his feed reserves are of, okay, it's wintertime in Montana and we've got to either go buy feed or we have to have feed on the ground that exists or we need to have baled hay. He would historically go out and have to have to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars over the coming months to support his animals growth and weight. And he's actually not a hundred percent there, but he is almost to the point where that's all produced on his farm. And we think that like all regenerative ag products, there's a little bit of time that it takes nature to adapt to changes in productivity. So you know, this, this isn't something that's going to happen 100% overnight, but you know that over the course of the next year, he's going to be at a, at a self-sustaining entity, which for him on the bottom line means that we've paid for ourselves seven to 10 times over in a very short period. And then we'll continue to pay for ourselves over each year and subsequently. And this brings up a nice question. How does the business model work? Like I rent the collars. Does every animal need one? And does I just rent one per year or something per animal? Or how does it practically work? Yeah, so we lease the collars or to customers. We view, I call it the iPhone issue that you face with technology on farms is that like everybody knows there's going to be a new version of your product at some point in the future. And since we're replacing a you know, 10,000 year old technology, you know, people are kind of like, oh, well, I can wait a, you know, till generation two or maybe even generation three. And so to short circuit that kind of as a business challenge, what we did. And rightfully so, because they've probably seen like a million other technologies come and, and disappear <laughs> very, very quickly. Yeah. They all have a shed of just technology that is now completely obsolete. And they're going, oh, yeah, you're going to sit next to XYZ's product that <laughs> you know, he sold my grandfather or you know, whatever it happens to be. And so 
we tried to short circuit that in this kind of leasing rental model. So it's, uh, it's $35 per animal per year that scales up and down a little bit based on the size of the farm. And then we will kind of upsell uh, those customers on different features and functionality as well. If they're, if they're kind of are relevant to their farm, we do put it on all animals. We view the kind of control of the entire herd is a critical part of how our system works and it's necessary for customers to put it across the whole herd. You're saying upsell. I've seen, obviously, there are a lot of interesting things you can do with the data or how you can help the farms to optimize. It's not just replacing my real fence with a virtual one and I can sort of adapt it a bit. No, there's a whole world of opportunities that you unlock as soon as you can just sit at your kitchen table and change your fencing in the morning. What are some of the exciting examples or things that you think may happen in, in the future? But let's say what, exciting examples you can do now that, that are completely impossible with real life fencing. And, and what are things that probably that I think is very interesting because that's why I, I bring things like this on. Like, What's the role of tech in regenerative agriculture? Like, How can it help farmers to really fundamentally farm differently? And virtual fencing, I think, fits perfectly in that bucket. But I'm, I'm always curious to hear what are the, the crazy things possible with technology like this that we didn't even think about? Yeah, I think so. The reason we think virtual fencing is really the foundation of the product is that it generates this return that I've already described to you. And so that enables us to put a device on each animal. And there are a lot of things you can do with sensors and that have been shown to be that can be done with sensors. And I'll talk about them in a second here. But most of those don't justify the application doesn't justify putting a device on each animal. It's kind of like, oh, that's really cool, but it generates X percent of return. Hmm, doesn't pay for doesn't pay for the device and the service each year. And so that's the reason that actually I got super excited about virtual fencing is it's putting an eye watch on your hand. All of a sudden you've got your watch on your hand and it's really interesting and it's got some applications and serves a purpose as it relates to your phone. And then all of a sudden Apple comes out and they go, hey, by the way, we can detect if you have heart arrhythmia because we've been looking at your data over the last year and, and we have insight into it. We're going to be able to do the same exact thing as it relates to fertility detection. All of a sudden, we can tell farmers, hey, this animal is not going through its fertility cycle or this animal stopped at this point in time. So we actually know that it was impregnated in field at this point in time via this bull. That level of insight right now doesn't exist. And it's done through there's a physical preg check that happens on, on animals. There is DNA testing that can be done to look to see who the sire is of animals and you also just generally won't know until the end of your year if your if your cattle are no longer going through the fertility cycle on a beef farm they're for lack of a better term non-producing assets and so it's an inefficient use for the land and it's an inefficient use of that farmer's resources to actually keep that animal eating grass it's just sitting there eating grass and not producing a calf which is the end product of a of a live pasture-based livestock farm and so when we look at kind of the opportunities that we have there, we view there being this, this really interesting kind of on-farm application where we're going, hey, we can now look at health metrics for animals. We can look at targeted you know, whether or not this animal has changed its behavioral pattern from this period of time to another, whether or not it's calving, all of these insights, which on the margin at a farm 
create some level of loss, but wouldn't justify putting devices on all those animals. But if you then all of a sudden you say, oh, yeah, look, we saved 2% of your herd last year via these detections, that translates into a huge level of profitability for our customer base that otherwise they wouldn't have access to. And then we think there's like this off-farm potential as well. And this gets into where we think things may go. But like you're in a world now, and this is happening already in Australia a bit, where people are looking at rotational grazing and the way that animals are managed and saying, this is actually better for the landscape. This is better for the planet and it's sequestering carbon. Yet there's no validation, right? Like there's no truthing of that other than somebody going out and sticking a a tube in the ground and testing the soil right now. But really you can actually say, hey, if we build a model and we can actually demonstrate that these animals were managed in this particular way, then this person was sequestering carbon in the soil and they should get paid for that. And so we think that there's also this ability for us to be a objective ground truthing of the practices in which those animals were managed that will eventually create a lot of value for our customer base, as well as can be a kind of interesting source of, hey, was this meat sustainably raised in the future when you go to the supermarket, for example? And in terms of the land management, like the grazing itself, how can you help the farmer there to optimize that? Because, of course, removing the fencing, suddenly you you come into a whole flexibility world that also could be overwhelming. But it definitely, I mean, you talked about the grazing and the optimal timing to when the cows need to be on the grass and when they shouldn't. How do you help on that side of things? Or how could you if you're not yet? Yeah, I think that like one of the things and and this isn't like intended to be pejorative, but like I think that you want to take baby steps. You don't want to land somewhere and say, look, like you need to go from zero to 100 miles an hour in day one. You need to take customers along with you on your journey and they need to be ready and they will decide what their kind of risk tolerance is for different um, things. And and so as it relates to your question, a lot of times, you know, we're coming into farms and we're with customers who already have an idea of what they want to do. And it's, it's great. Like they know their lands better than we do going into a farm and, and, and trying to pretend like I know better than somebody whose family has managed that land for you know, hundreds of years is, would be the ultimate arrogance. But we do think that over time, there is the ability for us to start to incorporate other data sources and the ability to say, look, like from satellite imagery, we can now tell you that this is what's going on with the forage in this pasture you've got X number of animals, we can kind of give you a pretty good insight of like these animals should be moved from here to here at this point in time. Do you see farmers already doing that? Like they combine your set with some other sets they have or the drone images they use or their observation they obviously use daily as they go over the land? It's a completely analog process at this point in time. It's something that most farmers are out looking at the land, looking at their animals and observing, which I I think is is absolutely never going away. I think livestock farmers, part of why they're livestock farmers, they, they love the land. They want to be out there with the animals. It's a very peaceful kind of, uh, you know, meditative, yeah. meditative lifestyle. So it's, 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 it's absolutely wonderful to be out in, in pasture with animals. I think that what they do right now is they're the ones who are out there and they're saying, yep, kind of feels like we should move. And then the question is like, 
how much of a pain is it for them to do that? <laughs> and, uh, and do they have in a place to move them that is actually better than where they are? Or do they deal with a kind of suboptimal scenario currently because they're not going to put up two miles of fencing to just hold animals for another couple of days or something along those lines? Yeah. No, and I see some people using these mobile fencing, like getting off a squat and basically relatively fast but still very labor intensive obviously getting some mobile electric fencing up and some even move i mean there's some of these systems that go up and down and move yeah they're the tumbles yeah Yeah. that works in a perfectly groomed landscape (laughs) um, yeah yeah, or like you know also like we look at the landscape the customer you can send them into a forest obviously as well yeah yeah Exactly. And, and, or if you look into like, you look at the American West and you look at Montana or Idaho, you've got these ditches and draws that'll go down 20 feet in a matter of three or four meters, right? It's just kind of massive change in landscape and putting fence line across that is actually really challenging and pretty impractical. And so what it enables our customers to do is just draw these imaginary lines and all of a sudden they become reality. So they don't deal with any of the kind of physical issues that are related to it. And so that's like when when we think about what, like I think that you've got to have a couple different legs to stand on as it relates to getting adoption for your product. And one of the legs that you have to stand on is like, you got to change your customer's lifestyle. Like you got to make, you have yeah. to make things better. <laughs> like it's got to be more profitable, but like, our customers are overworked to begin with and like they don't have another couple hours in the day that they're just going to squeeze in something new and and cool. It's like, how do we improve their quality of life as well as their productivity at the same time? And that's when we talk to our customers, that's something that's also really apparent was they go, Oh man, like I was never able to do this. It would have been a complete pain to do. And now I'm able to get and I can do it and I can get out there and do the things that I actually like, which I go out, be with the animals, kind of take a look at what's going on in the field rather than constantly running to go repair the fence line that some bull ran through and tore down the fence line and the rest of the animals got out of the pasture and I spent the whole day regathering them. Which is a lot of time spent. Yeah. Uh Yeah. And nobody puts that like into a spreadsheet and says, oh, 10 hours lost. My time is worth, yeah, is X and there was 10 hours lost. But it happens you know, daily or weekly on a livestock farm. And it's just part of the unexpected nature of how things are managed. And so I think that like one of the things that will happen with our system is we're going to enable this sense of predictability where you can say, look, like I wake up, I know where my animals are. Even if one animal broke through the virtual fence line, I know where it is still because, you know, I'm tracking that animal. Yeah, because if the bull breaks through, it's not that the others follow like you normally have. Exactly. It doesn't ruin the fence line for the other animals. The other animals are still contained. So it's uh, once customers kind of you get insight into that, it starts to make the bells go off in, in their minds as well. of Like, oh, this is actually really going to be game changing for us on, on a lifestyle perspective as well. No, I find it absolutely fascinating. And I always like to put the the companies of the interviewees we have here onto the ITN framework, which is importance, tractability, and neglectedness. 
And yeah. I think importance we we covered. Like there's there's a billion <laughs> there's a billion cattle heads of cattle out there, plus probably another one point five two billion of other livestock. And and the importance on land, both on the destruction and the potential side, are just enormous. The tractability you, you mentioned as well. How solvable is this problem? Like how how easy is it for the bull to get out or to just ignore it or how, how many of the colors don't work after a while or stop working? Or maybe what kind of reception yeah. do you need in the middle of nowhere uh, where yeah. cell phone reception is already very tricky? I know many farms don't have broadband for that reason. Like how difficult is the technology and hardware piece in very challenging Montana, deep snow, etc., or very hot areas? How, how difficult is the tech part? It's a great question. I think that, that yeah, it's a double-edged sword because you want the problem to be really hard but you want it to be solvable because if it's not really hard, then everybody's going to be able to do it and you don't have a great business. That's the next <laughs> right? one. Yeah. How neglected is it? Like how many others are looking at this from other? Exactly. And so for us, one of the things that we did that I think kind of really differentiates us in the space, we'll get to the neglected comment, but like we looked at this as a communications platform and animal management and animal control is the application which sits on a communications platform. So when we went to go build the company and resource the company in terms of what we needed to execute this, it was actually a communications hardware team that was able to build and design a communications product that works in these extremely challenged environments over huge spaces or huge swaths of land. And we managed to, uh, I was kind of researching the product this is kind of the problem statement is like we need to have a highly reliable very low cost extremely large ranged communication system that works in areas that are sometimes in the middle of what looks like mars and i managed to stumble across you know, for better or for worse i call it stumbled across the a hardware solution when I was looking for that and it was best in class solution. And the problem was their business model was just way too expensive for what we're going to do. It just would have eaten up all of the margin for our customers. You know, there would have been no, no real application, no real business model other than simply a communications platform. And the business model of that company was actually what drove that company to fail. But the team that was behind building that you know, was was available at the time. And so I was able to pick off after the bankruptcy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> after the failure, it was. Well, a, yeah. Well, I, yeah. well, as the company was really kind of, you know, starting to go down, I was able to bring the leader of that team really over to Vince and he was able to bring a number of his, his, his colleagues with him. And so we were able to, in short order, really build a platform, which is what we built. And on that platform sits sits this animal communications and this animal management application. I think that thinking about it that way is actually our differentiation factor. I mean, it's our secret sauce as a company and the team, you know, and, and how we built that. When you say platform, does it mean there's more than the caller out there? Like I, as a farmer, have to install a pole or, or something to make it work? Or a platform is more a virtual term in this case? At this point in time, yeah, it's, it's a, there's a pole, you know, so, so he puts up a tower. What we do is we'll any given customer will will send us through what their what their farm map looks like, and we basically will create a RF propagation map over that. So we'll basically say, "Hey, here's what a network coverage will look like. We need to put a pole here, here, and here." And then we've built that 
system end to end to basically drop ship to that customer a solution set and tell them, hey, this needs to go here. And they're able to do that. And it's, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. That the team, you know, it's my background's not in engineering, so it's really a testament to, to everybody at the company except for me. <laughs> <laughs> that this actually works. Yeah, yeah, it actually works, and they're absolutely, uh, you know, they, they continue to impress me in terms of the things that they make and continue to do. But you know, to your question, the the other thing is the reason we call it a platform is because when we look at it, animal management is one application, but like, you know, water monitoring sensors, soil sensors they all need a communication platform. They all need to be able to plug into it. And when you look at the, you know, this goes back to my previous comment about like, you know, a lot of these things that you could previously do with sensors, they don't justify the full deployment. All of a sudden you've got a network there and it's like, Oh yeah, we'll hook that into our network. We'll dial that in. And they generate you know, multiples of value for our customer base, but they're you know, cheap plugins for us to basically add onto the network. And so we certainly kind of expect to expand into those over the over the coming years as well. And in terms of neglectedness, how busy is the virtual fencing space? Uh, it's it's not very busy. <laughs> so you know there there you are, can count them on one hand. Probably, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, you can count less than one hand. We view there as being again, there are a lot of companies that have built cattle tracking sensors. And I don't actually view that as competition. This isn't a a dig against those companies. But um, when you look at an IoT network and an IoT platform, the ability to have uplink versus downlink, it's actually, there's a complete imbalance. There's, you know, 16 times easier to report GPS data up to a network than it is to send information down to that device and control that device. And so when I dismiss those as non-competition, it's because they would have to re- they would have to build a completely different solution to get into the virtual fencing space. And so when you when you get into the virtual fencing space, there are really three competitors that we look at. There's Agersons out of Australia, Halter out of New Zealand, and No Fence out of Norway. And each of them have built different solutions. None of them at this point in time is commercially available. So we you know, we're kind of all sprinting towards commercial availability. Everybody has their different benefits and drawbacks. We, you know, we should, in our opinion, be out in the forefront over the coming year. We should, you know, we're expecting to put out, you know, fifty thousand collars next year and you know cover two and a half million acres of land. And we think that that'll that'll kind of squarely put us in, you know, the most commercially available solution there. But it's. Um, you know, it's a space that when you're talking about a billion potential users just in the in the cattle and fifty thousand is is nothing. Yeah, fifty thousand is just not even scratching the edge of the surface. And so, you know, it's it's extremely neglected as a space and people looking at. No, I think that that answers it nicely. I, I want to be conscious of your time and end with some, I think, fast questions. Let's see if we can manage. And and otherwise, yeah, we keep some for another episode. Apologize if I'm rambling. I get excited about some of these things. So. No, absolutely <laughs> not. It's the first time we have virtual fencing. We've discussed it actually with Bert Clover once, but just scratching the surface again and never got into the real details. And so it's something we I've been waiting for. So definitely want to ask about the details, but let's ask some questions. I always like to ask, what if you would be in charge of a hundred billion or one billion, sorry, $1 billion investment fund tomorrow morning? 
what would your portfolio look like if you had complete freedom to invest it? So not granted, what would you put it to work and why? Oh, it's a good question. <laughs> Since you have investors on this podcast, I'd obviously have to say, throw it all in vents. No, that's a lot of colors. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think that I would, you know, given how deep I am in the space that I'm in, like in the understanding that I have, like you, most people invest a lot, like they feel more comfort in investing in what they know. And so I think what I would probably do, and I've thought about this, is there are a bunch of countries in the world that are perhaps really significant agricultural producing assets, both on the livestock and on the farmland. Brazil's a great example where their currency has been devalued by 50% in the last year, right? So I would actually spend 80% of that buying assets in those lands that are non-regenerative and non-kind of uh, suboptimally producing. I'd probably spend 10% of it investing in ag tech. The tools, yeah. Yeah, tools to bring productivity up, you know, two to three times on those property. And then I'd probably spend the last 10% on like supply chain efficiencies and marketing to get those products into the like higher value markets at a price point, which captures their value. So I'd like, I'd invest- 80, 10, 10. Kind of along, yeah, 80, 10, 10 is how I'd look at it. And it's a very, very nice answer actually. And what if you could change one thing overnight in the egg space? So you have a magic wand and you, Frank, have the great power to change one single thing in the egg food space. What would you do? Oh, that's a risky question there. Being in the US, the, the, the immediate thing that pops up is I'm like, oh, would I get rid of just corn subsidies? <laughs> Which people have said, like, take away all subsidies and let's figure it out. But yeah. I think I would actually enable a nutrient deficiency tax where you actually, via a mechanism, are charging like... Your bag of Cheetos costs you what a pack of cigarettes costs because of it's like of what's actually in that bag. Complete absence. Yeah. yeah. And so you'd get back to this sense that people are actually paying for what they're getting, not a false version of reality. I think it's the first actually in the podcast, somebody mentioned that, but it's a very, I mean, policy has come back and forth and, and getting or getting the externality costs into it. I think a few people have mentioned that and yeah, it's a false cheapness we see. It fall like it's empty calories, and we know it. Most people know it, and but it's still. And most people like, how do we give people the choice to actually switch to go for the nutrient density stuff? And it's gonna be a carrot and a stick, probably in, in mixed forms. But this is, yeah, it's gonna be one of the big challenges. Like, how do we make sure people get what they pay for? I think it has to be a carrot and a stick because we're so smart as as humans that we've hacked the human you know, taste bud and we sold and fat. Yeah. <laughs> and we basically completely circ circumvented reality. And like, we're like, Oh, look, we can hack the brain. So like, you know, we'll, we'll just sell people this and they don't, they don't have, you know, they don't have any insight into it. So like the government, like that, that would be the optimal version of where the government comes in and says, look, this is actually what is best for society and like you're going to get charged attack for that you can still smoke cigarettes that's fine however like you, you just not indoors yeah yeah you're just not indoors and you got to pay a tax for it that's just like reality and this is definitely inspired by john kempf but what do you believe to be true about regen ag that others don't believe to be true apart from that virtual fencing is the future but yeah that's, uh, <laughs> that's maybe because most people didn't think about that not because they don't believe to be true do you have any strong feelings that others not share or the other way around yeah well i'm on a podcast with like 
people who are listening, spending an hour to listen about like regen ag investing. So, so saying something that they don't already believe to be true is like, mm, you're asking me to stretch a little bit here. I mean, that's why I ask it. Because I think if you talk about society at large, right, like it's that regen ag is actually cheaper than commercial ag. I, we can definitely stretch the others. This is an interesting one because we have people listening that say you cannot make money with regen ag or with ag in general. Yeah. Like it's impossible because you will be squeezing something, etc. So you're saying it's cheaper. I, explain. Yeah, I think it's like, why is harvesting corn so cheap? It's because of the tools that are used to harvest corn, right? You've got these massive combines that John Deere makes that are cost you millions of dollars, but they enable you to have scale to do it. And the thing that regen ag lacks is tools. And so as soon as it has tools, it's going to be cheaper, in my opinion. So that's, that, I mean, I, I don't know that, I, I'd imagine most people who are deep in regen ag already believe that. And that's like, yeah, but like, you know, that, that's my, uh, I think it has to be cheaper. If you don't believe that, then you probably shouldn't be in the space. <laughs> no, it has to be, and it will be, are two different things. I mean, it has to be, I mean, for a long time, it was solar energy has to be cheaper. Now, in many places, it is. But it, it took a while. I mean, it took the tools to build it, the factories and, and the financing schemes and, of course, the subsidies as well. This is different, in a, but like we hope that it will be cheaper. And you're saying, actually, with many customers, we see that it is fundamentally cheaper already with even the first version of the tools, not, not even. I think solar is like such a great parallel, right? Like renewable energy is like you look 20 years ago and five years like, ago, oh. honestly. Yeah. yeah. But like if you look 20 years ago, the whole focus was like there was a boom about like you know, who can build the panels and then they built the tools and they got to a point where they, they now the, now the boom's going to be in battery, right? Like you, you're already seeing it. The great thing about regen ag is like the battery is the soil. <laughs> you don't need to build it. All we need to build is like the tools, the primary tool, which is the solar panels already built for you, right? Like, which is grass or it's the plant or the tree or whatever. Yeah, yeah exactly. The battery's already there. We just need to find like the optimal ways to harvest it or to increase productivity of, of those. And then you're going to have farms that, that are going to make a lot more money. Like it's, it, it seems so much easier than the renewable energy thing where you have to build each of the components along the way because they're man-made versus nature's already spent millions of years A, B testing, <laughs> you know, in the, in the word of the tech. A, B, C, D, F testing probably. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so now we've got the results of these millions of years of testing. And all we need to do is like, just get out there and do biomimicry, basically. And why do you see such a strong pushback then in articles on region ag will never be able and where are the peer reviewed papers and, and adaptive grazing? I mean, savory is being harassed, I think, every day in the press or in, in from university professors that it they never found a peer reviewed paper that it actually works. And then I always like to point out there are millions of farmers or hundreds of actually using it and it works like in their circumstances. Why is it so difficult to believe that you can actually build soil and eat from it and sort of have it have both of that? Like you can regenerate an asset, you can regenerate soil and also grow food. This is going to be a whole different podcast now, but yeah. I, yeah, like, exactly. Well, You're asking me in like the... Do you have a short answer for that or should we keep it for another episode? Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know the answer to that. Like, I, I wish I did. If I did, I would be focused on hacking that answer. <laughs> like, you know, I think it's one that a lot of times people find answers to, you know, it's the confirmation bias, right? People want to believe something. And so they go out and try and find answers to confirm what they already believe. 
and trust me, both sides of the party, both sides of the fence do that for a lot of things, but it's uh, the proverbial fence. The virtual one. Exactly. But I think that a lot of times when you look at kind of people attacking savory, look, the challenge on ag is that it exists everywhere on the planet. So no two farms are actually the same. They don't have the same soils. They aren't necessarily producing the same product. And so if you apply the exact same results and tests from one place to another place, you may not get the same answer, which when it gets to a simplistic scientific method version of the world, all of a sudden you say, oh, that doesn't work because it didn't work. You know, I took this here and I, I, I translated this test from here to, to from A to Y and it doesn't work. So that means it doesn't work. No, it doesn't mean that. It just means you're actually dealing with nuance and you need to take a holistic view of the problem that you're looking at and incorporate all the variables into your test. And so I think that that's like, that's what happens in a lot of like these peer review papers that will attack savory. Like, listen, savory's method doesn't work exactly the same everywhere. It doesn't, grazing doesn't work the same in New Zealand as it works in northern Queensland, which are not that far apart. Like, you know, the same methodology doesn't work in the US. Exactly. It's tweaks. You need tools to enable customers to adapt to their landscape and to the climate. And I think that the answer summarily is like, it's being able to take a holistic view on it. And that that our customers, the, the producers are the ones who I would listen to, right? If they don't go and spend money on practices that don't translate to their bottom line. People don't, <laughs> they don't have the ability to go and risk their money on something that goes against social norms to begin with. If it doesn't make sense. yeah. If it doesn't make sense for them, it's not going to work for them. And so I think that's absolutely who I trust and, and what drives me and kind of our North star is like, listen, our producer saying this works. Or are we telling them it works? Like, you know, what, what's reality? Uh, no, that's a big difference. And do they reorder? Yeah. Look, Frank, I want to thank you so much for your time, for sharing. And I definitely don't think it's the last time we have you, hopefully, on the podcast. And um, wish you an absolute great day. Great. Thank you so much, Kev. If you would like to learn more on how to put money to work in regenerative food and agriculture, find our video course on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course. This course will teach you to understand the opportunities, to get to know the main players, to learn about the main trends and how to evaluate a new investment opportunity, like what kind of questions to ask. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course. If you found the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast valuable, there are a few simple ways you can use to support it. Number one, rate and review the podcast on your podcast app. That's the best way for other listeners to find the podcast, and it only takes a few seconds. Number two, share this podcast on social media or email it to your friends and colleagues. Number three, if this podcast has been of value to you, and if you have the means, please join my membership community to help grow this platform and allow me to take it further. You can find all the details on gumroad.com slash investingregionag or in the description below. Thank you so much and see you at the next podcast.